Welcome to episode 123. Today, we welcome Dr. Luis Javier Pendon Herrera to talk about supporting SLIFE. Welcome to the Teaching Multilingual Learners podcast. This podcast celebrates teachers who answer the calling to serve multilingual students and their families. Your beautiful smile, your beautiful life are waiting for you to shine bright. It's never too early or late to start to rise up and shine. Your beautiful smile, your beautiful life are waiting for you to shine bright. It's never too early or late to start to rise up and shine. The field of language acquisition is like a rainbow. There are so many hues and distinct colors represented by our distinct different demographics of students. One part of the rainbow that is gaining more attention are our life. In this podcast conversation, we take a tour of the research and look at how teachers are applying the research. Now, on to today's podcast. I have the special honor and the fortune to once again host Dr. Luis Javier Bendon Herrera to the podcast. And this time we're going to continue our SLIFE theme and, and having him talk about his book. Well, Dr. Herrera, Bendon Herrera, welcome back to the podcast. Tan, thank you so much for your invitation again and for the opportunity to continue talking to you. Thank you. The last time we talked, you shared a really touching story about a student who didn't come back to school. Would you tell us a different story of working with students that has really impacted your experience? Absolutely, Tan. Thank you for that question. And let me share with you, I have an, another emotional story <laughs> for you this time. I guess my entire teaching career is just emotional stories. But this one, it's, it's very... Um, very close to my heart because it goes back to actually before I was a teacher, just me growing up in my family and my interest in and motivation behind this topic of um, students with limited or interrupted formal education or um, literacy. In, in fact, you know, like formal schooling, literacy, all of these topics, they go back to my family, my paternal grandmother and my dad are both individuals who I guess you consider um, like students with interrupted schooling or with very limited schooling. My grandmother never attended for formal school in her life. And uh, my grand um, and my father, he completed a up to third grade, what is considered third grade education. And then that's it. He didn't com continue his schooling. So thankfully, they were both uh, present, especially my grandmother, were very present in my life during my developmental years. And I do remember uh, I do have this particular memory. We were at the kitchen table in my uh, living room in my mom's house. And then, you know, as an elementary child, uh, when you're learning to read, to write, you, you like to share those things with your family. Like, oh, look, I can read this. Oh, look. And then my grandmother just happened to be there that day. And I was writing, um, I think it was like a, like a paragraph or something. It was very, you know, a big event in my learning life. And then I shared that with my grandmother. I'm like, look, look, I, I wrote this. Can you, can you see it? Because I was doing homework. And then can you read it? Can you tell me if it's okay? And then she, she told me I cannot read. And that confused me 
imagine, you know, an elementary age student person, uh, I, I just thought in my head, wow, everybody can read and write, you know, especially adults, they should be able to read and write. And I was just confused. I still remember this vividly. I remember this feeling and I just kind of in disbelief, I think I started laughing out loud and telling my grandmother, you know, this is not possible. What do you mean you cannot read? And um, it, it's interesting. She took that opportunity to educate me. She told me, don't laugh. Don't laugh at people like me. Don't laugh at me. Just instead teach me. And that really stayed with me, you know, and um, I dedicated this book, actually, the this life book to my grandmother, to my dad. And um, it's it has been my passion since I was little. And I hope to this is only the beginning. I, I really hope to continue this line of work as soon as I get a little bit less busy. <laughs> I'm just always, always busy for some reason, but, um, you know, doing other projects, but I really want to continue this, um, this line of, of research and work. It's, it's a, it's a very, very passionate um, topic close to my heart. Yeah. Well, your grandmother is looking down on you. Your abuela is looking down on you and she is so proud of you right now. I'm sure because from a single paragraph to now writing books, and in the future we'll continue to write books that continue to teach others. I guess um, she wished that, he said, don't laugh at me, come teach me, right? And now you're using that as a way to teach us all how to work with students or people like your grandmother or like my mother, who is also, or my sister, who's also a slave. So thank you. Thank you so much, Sam, for those kind words. You know, and, and let me share with you that growing up and, and still thinking, that has guided a lot of my teaching, my thinking about formal schooling, that um, pe when people say, oh, you have an education or, or you went to school, I don't necessarily see intelligence related to formal schooling. And I always tell my mom, my mom completed a 12th grade. So, you know, she's what we consider educated person, a person who completed her schooling. But uh, I do tell my mom all the time, you have a PhD in life because you, you're one of the most, you know, wise individuals that I know in my life. So much wisdom. And my grandmother was the same. Of course, she did have some difficulties with print, you know, reading, writing. My mom would always accompany her to events where she had to sign or read or she needed support with print. But beyond that, my, my grandmother also, who never attended school, she was wise, just a wise person. And um, I think that has definitely shaped my perspective of schooling and how I look at students with interrupted and uh, limited um, education that just because they didn't go to school for whatever reason, that doesn't make them any more intelligent, any more capable of, of success, of learning, of being able to, to interact in the classroom. And um, that's something that has definitely shaped the way I think about all students. That was such a quotable moment right there. You said intelligence is, formal schooling is not a sign of intelligence, right? And it's, I think it's, it's just a sign of opportunities. Mm -hmm. right? and, yes. and you said your mom has a PhD and your grandmother has a PhD in life. And that goes back mm -hmm. to the concept of assets-based instruction, where we see life kids as not like, like oh, puro besito, look at what the things that have happened to you that has caused you to have limited or interrupted education. Now we say, oh my goodness, look at all the life experiences that you've had that I have never had. And you survive wars, you survive uh, natural disasters that I, as a per privileged person, never really had to experience. 
let's talk about the seed for this book. Well, I, um, I started working, it was kind of like a, an epiphany moment for me. It was um, when I was pursuing my doctoral degree, my first, let me tell you, so my first uh, proposal, my, my first proposal for my dissertation got, um, re, um, got revised and then got uh, rejected. And uh, it was not approved, the first um, proposal. And it was going to talk about literacy campaigns. I don't know if you're familiar with the term, but in essence, is uh, they call it literacy campaigns are uh, events or programs that um, especially developing countries use um, to, to promote print literacy and to teach print literacy. And um, it's um, Cuba had a very uh, popular literacy campaign in 1959, for example, which, you know, um, that's what they promoted there. And, but they, you, you can find it everywhere in, uh, throughout the world. And I wanted to do that, but in the United States, we really don't have literacy campaigns. So that was not a, a thing for my university. So they said, no, this is not gonna work for us. So I went with my second topic and then I was kind of like breaking my head. I was like, what am I going to uh, focus on? Because I already knew that I wanted to do this work with um, SLIFE students. And I didn't know the acronym SLIFE at that time. I just knew students who didn't have uh, you know, that opportunity to go to school or they didn't develop print literacy yet. Um, so I, at that time, I was also welcoming students, Mayan students, Mam, Kechi, Ichil, and uh, different communities of Mayan students. And many of them had interrupted or limited formal schooling. And um, it just happened that I was learning about them because I didn't know about indigenous students. And then realizing that many of them also had interrupted schooling, it was just an epiphany. I was like, okay, this is the topic that I need to focus on in my dissertation. And I do think that when a door closes, a window opens. And when they said no to rejection my first time, it was just meant to be. I needed to, to focus on, on this population of indigenous students, which I love, I'm very passionate about. But then also I get to combine my second passion, my other passion, that is uh, SLIFE. And that was just what I needed to do in my, um, in my dissertation. And it, it, you know, it, it really tells uh, a story that, that I, I did have to wait for my second, uh, my second uh, proposal and, and I had to wait longer than I wanted to. But eventually I think I, I'm very proud of the work that I did in my dissertation and it got an award from, from um, the American Literacy Educa Educators um, Research Association, uh, A-L-E-R Association. And, you know, it's just, everything happened at the right time. <laughs> it had to be that way. I wrote that exact phrase down. I said, door closed, window opened, right? And so yes, you always. Just, right, and it's the right door that closed because it was the right open that, it was the right window that needed to be open. That's yes. a really touching story. Can you tell us about Thanks. part one of your book? Uh, how can we frame the conversation around SLIFE students? Yes, absolutely, Tan. So, um, you know, as you know, the, the first part of, of the book, of this book, it has one chapter, and, and this is something that in the initial proposal of the book, I knew that I wanted to talk about how to frame the conversation, because uh, in the field, we're talking a lot about deficit mindset and what words to use, what words not to use. In this acronym, we do have the word limited, which many times might be seen as deficit, but it is the acronym that we have right now. It's the umbrella that we're using and all the research is going under this umbrella. And um, I was very grateful. One of the reviewers actually um, 
when we send the proposal for the when I send the proposal for the book, the the reviewer said, I think you need to frame this conversation. And um, I was like, hmm, that's exactly what I wanted to, to do. So I, um, I, I had the idea in mind and I reached out to two wonderful co-authors, Chris, Christopher Browder and Jose Franco. And I, I already knew what I wanted to write. I, I had the opportunity to talk to Christopher and I told him, look, this is what I want in the chapter. I need you to help me write it because it has a quantitative mindset. I'm very, very qualitative storytelling and like, you know, and he's very numbers person. So it's just perfect support. And then Jose Franco brought this very new idea of what interrupted looks like. When we think about interrupted schooling, we usually think students who do not know how to read and write. But in his, in his particular context of Venezuela, he talks about interrupted schooling as refugees having to stop their school because of political reasons. And, and those are university students, so they know how to read and write, but they have to interrupt their schooling to go and migrate. And, um, you know, they both graciously accepted my invitation. And then we started writing. I think we it really took less than a, a month to finish this chapter because we already knew what we wanted. It was just a matter of starting to write the chapter. But um, in our message, really, uh, for this conversation about, about SLIFE and around the topic of SLIFE, we framed it from an asset-based perspective, humanistic perspective. And then we that means that we talked about um, the label of SLIFE to go beyond the label and think of students as human beings. When we think of SLIFE, first, um, and this is something that Christopher made a very great point in the chapter, he talks about how when we think of SLIFE, the way that is operationalized, that's a quantitative term, by the way, the way that we use it, it's very number person. The way that he used or that we use the term life, it's really, um, it's not conclusive. You know, um, you may have a person who is considered life because they have six months of interrupted schooling, or you might have a SLIFE student who had never uh, attended formal school. So we really don't know what SLIFE really is. The criterion is very, very wide, very, very open. So don't think of SLIFE students as all being the same. Learn from them, learn from their experiences, talk to them. Um, also, when we think about uh, SLIFE students, do they speak indigenous languages or minority languages within their countries? That's usually one of the reasons why they do not have access to formal education. So again, learning about their stories, not putting them in a box because that doesn't work very well, uh, especially for SLIFE. Also, we talked about um, SLIFE in this particular frame, uh, framing the conversation. We propose, we hopefully push the field and we, um, we're, we're stating, we're encouraging policymakers and, and administrators to think about why are we using this label? So when we use, just to give you an example, when we use labels like IEP or special education, usually English learners, usually those labels have advantages, economic advantages, budget support. So ELs, they have budget support for the EL program. But then SLIFE, if you're assigned them a label, just to assign it and you don't have any budget, any support and any economic support to help them, what are you doing then? You're stigmatizing them without any support. And um, so in this chapter, we don't have answers. We just have a lot of, you know, um, inquietudes or concerns that we're just pushing forward in the field. And, you know, the use of labels, why are we using it? Do we need to use it? 
what can we do? You know, can we, for example, put slide within IEPs or specific considerations that students bring with them that that would give them budget and you know for the school, the the, the teachers to support those print literacy uh, needs or what can we do with life? Um, so there is a lot in there. Um, Dr. DiCapua, Andrea DiCapua, she was very gracious. She, she's wonderful and she graciously uh, accepted to, to review this chapter. We had the chapters were peer reviewed, so amongst ourselves. And, um, and then after, after the Springer, the reviewers also review them. But um, before I send out the final manuscript, she graciously reviewed this, this chapter. And she said, Luis, these are many of the, of the things that I've struggled with myself as well with the, the, the topic of SLIVE, the acronym, the label. So um, I think we're right on the money with this particular chapter. And I hope really the, the purpose is to, to frame it as a humanist uh, asset-based conversation, but also to, to cause some, some tensions there so the field can continue to move forward. You know, what are we doing for SLIVE? Yeah, labels are always problematic. And I bet that in five, at least 10 years, this acronym will probably change to uh, focus, uh, to change the idea of what limited and interrupted really means. Yes, absolutely. And that's actually something that we, I actually talk about in chapter two. And there's just so many, um, so many terminologies, terms, labels that are used throughout. Um, you have, for example, if you're focusing on adolescent and adults, you have LESLA. Um, which is, you know, uh, an organization that focuses specifically on that student population. They don't use LIVE, they use LESLA uh, term, which I'm, I'm trying to remember now what it, what it stands for, but it's something like second language learners for adults, something like that. And um, then you also have, like in Australia, you have disrupted schooling. Um, you also have students with interrupted formal education, which is uh, Dr. Custodio and Ms. Uh, Judy O'Laughlin. They use it, the SIF acronym. Um, so, I mean, you have so many things. That's also one of the things that we talked about in that chapter one uh, with Christopher and Jose. If we start using too many different acronyms, this is a fairly new field of study. So there's only really, when you think about how many people research or work with, um, you know, publish about SLIFE population, it's only a few of us, um, you know, that we know. And um, so if we, each of us starts using different acronyms, that's not going to help the research become one field. You know, it's just going to be spread throughout. Um, so that that's another concern that we had in that chapter. But again, we don't have an answer. We're just throwing it out there for for the for the field to explore. Well, when I saw that chapter, you were talking about uh, research in the U.S., Canada, Australia, and the U.K. I was so excited because. We have most of our listeners on the podcast come from the U.S., but a lot the second the second most are come from Canada, and then there there are there are our Aussie listeners, and then there are also our British listeners. So it's great that you actually touched on that because we know that uh, SLIFE students or SLIFE they don't go just to America; they go they're all around the world. I'm thinking about the recent uh, Afghani uh, refugees; they are now all over the world. Mm -hmm. Yes, and, and those four countries, Dan, are actually the, um, the way that we, that's chapter two, which focuses on K through 12 students in those four countries and chapter three, it's kind of like the sister chapter that focuses on adults in those four countries. And the way that we and, and Jamie, Jamie wrote chapter three, the way that we talked about these two chapters, sister chapters, is that we wanted to focus on the most um, 
the countries that received the most refugees and because of the book focuses on English specifically. So the, the four countries that um, English speaking countries that welcome the most refugees with this population. And those were the four countries that uh, were identified. Let's move to chapter four then. Can you tell us about why and how and where to advocate for a life? Yes, absolutely. So chapter four, I, I reached out to Dr. Heather Linville, wonderful, wonderful person, wonderful collaborator. And um, she's a big name in advocacy for English learners, as we know. And of course, I had to welcome her to, to this and invite her to this book. And um, we agreed that, um, you know, in our conversation, our initial conversations, we agreed that just welcoming life and saying, okay, welcome to our school, that's not enough. You know, we need to, to advocate for inclusion, for high quality education, specifically their needs, which is print literacy. If in schools, the way it is right now in, in, in the US, in Canada, Australia, the UK, if you do not know how to read and write in schools, sadly, you're not going to succeed. It's just the way that formal schooling is set up right now. So what we talked about here is that we propose a, a very easy five-step advocacy process that teachers can use first life. And we actually used her, um, she recently published a, an article in Tissot Journal very practitioner focused, very easy to read uh, on, on this five-step process of advocacy for teachers. But then we kind of took it and then we changed it or, or tweaked it specifically for the context of life. And then um, we use that five-step process. We shared three real life examples of how teachers can advocate for life. And those three real life examples actually uh, happened to us. So she wrote the second one, I wrote the first and the third example. And um, using this five-step process, this, this was the issue. And then this is what we did uh, following those five steps. Very practitioner-oriented. I did want this book to be very, yes, of course, it has a lot of research. It's research-based. But I'm talking to teachers, to practitioners. So I want them to understand, look, this is all the research, but this is how you can do it. Because many times I find, Tan, that um, a lot of the books are very interesting. But then as a teacher, how can I use this in my classroom i need to see a practice you know practical application so that's what i wanted each chapter has practical applications for teachers all of them and then um we also in this chapter we provide a, a brief excerpt of or a brief overview of the laws um of, of the u.s here in, in uh, or over there in the u.s uh specific laws that apply to um students and their their benefits and their the the things that are they're legally um, legally, they, they are able to receive those supports uh, by law, right? So they're entitled to those services legally. And um, we had that, it's actually their appendices. So they're translated in Spanish, Arabic, Vietnamese, Chinese, and of course, English. And those are five, five languages that are, um, well, English, of course, the first language, but then the other four, are the, the four languages that are spoken the most in K through 12 schools by students when we, when we found. Uh, so the, the, most, the top four uh, languages spoken in K through 12 schools. So, uh, you know, and, and of course, advocacy takes a village. So we had to recruit some uh, colleagues and friends to help us with the translation, Dr. Roa Rashid and, and Ethan Trin. Um, they're wonderful friends and colleagues of mine. They translated what we had in English to um, 
Arabic, Dr. Rashid, and then Ethan to Vietnamese. And then I had two of my students in uh, my master's class in IGW, they translated my appendix from English to Chinese. And of course I translated it to English. And uh, it's there, you know, writing is a form of advocacy. So we, we wanted this appendix specifically to be something that teachers can just print out and give it to parents. And parents know that their, their children are entitled to get services in their languages, that they, parents, are also entitled to receive these services and support in their languages in schools. That, um, you know, we, we also talked about there in the appendix, we have information about homelessness. You know, if students are homeless, what services can they get? All of these things that students might need, um, we, we, uh, we share that. <laughs> Let's double click on and zoom in on those five steps. Can you share what those five steps are? So, um, and this is in the section of how to advocate. So the five step is to notice, noticing. And um, it, the, this step is just to become aware of a problem. Um, the second step is determining action. So when an issue is identified, when a problem is identified, then advocates need to first evaluate the many factors involved in their current situation. So, so such, um, for example, institutional hierarchy, politics, stakeholders, and the advocate's own position in the organization. So advocacy is also, you know, it's not you just saying something in favor of someone. You have to know where you are, your positioning, and how you can best support the population that you're trying to support. So you first need to know who you are and how you're situated in your organization. Step three is building alliances. After evaluating all the factors involved in the advocacy efforts, advocates must rally support. So again, it takes a community to, to become an advocate. And then uh, step four, gathering information. After establishing strong alliances in favor of your advocacy efforts, Advocates must then thoroughly assess potential risks associated with taking strategic action. And then step five, taking strategic action, um, equipped with co-advocates, knowledge and appropriate evidence, materials, support. The advocate is now ready to take strategic action for their students. And this is just kind of a brief overview of the five steps, but then we provide um, like step-by-step -step on, on the examples, the real, real, real life examples on how to advocate using those five steps. Well, thank you for, for those very clear and systematic five steps that we can take. It's very similar to uh, assessing students, like pre-assessing students and saying, okay, let's evaluate and let's take actions at the end after we evaluated what the students need. Yeah. Absolutely, yes, yes. Let's move to part three of your book. And you advocated for pre and in-service teachers to move from subject-centered pedagogy to student-centered pedagogy. Can you talk about that? Absolutely, and um, thank you, Tan. You know, I, I love this section. When I was envisioning the book, the organization, part three in particular, um, I knew this section was going to be very unique because there is very little work when we think about SLIFE in general. There's very little research. It's a very emerging field right now. But then when we think about teacher preparation, how do we prepare teachers to support SLIFE um, and teacher education programs in particular? 
there is very, very little work being done right now. Um, yes, there, there are publications about how teachers can use strategies in the classroom, but how do you prepare teachers? There isn't a lot of conversation. So I knew that I, I needed to bring in the, you know, the, the big names in the field. So we have uh, Brenda Custodio, Yudio Laughlin, we have Andrea DiCapo and Helene Marshall here. We have um, Dr. Montero from Canada and Stephanie Ledger. They're wonderful, I love their work. And then I was very grateful to recruit Michelle Morero and Charlene Desir. And one of them is a teacher at, at um, Arlington Public Schools in Virginia. And the other one is a professor at Nova uh, University in Florida. And they're just wonderful, wonderful uh, uh, you know, collaborators, writers, scholars, teachers, when they were writing their, their chapters, um, there were a lot of different major takeaways. Each chapter is kind of like their own unique, uh, has its own unique personality, its own unique message. But the bigger takeaways I think from this section is that teachers need to recognize that our students are the ones who actually teach us you know, um, how to support them, especially life. We, we cannot, as, as educators, we cannot come with a, a preset mindset of what we're going to teach or how we're going to teach students. Students have to let us know what they need. Uh, uh, many times I did that and, and that kind of actually created tensions because, you know, we're supposed to, as teachers, we're taught you're supposed to be prepared for class. But for live students, um, really what they get is what they need in that particular day. If they need to work on tracing, for example, and I'm talking about perhaps adolescents, you cannot start teaching to write sentences if they don't know how to hold a pen yet, you know, or how to write their names. So you just really have to meet them where they are. And um, um, Brenda Custodio and Yuri Laughlin did a wonderful job at um, talking about the, the very, very um, kind of an overview of, of the US and the very limited work being done about life preparation in teacher education programs. There's you know, visibly nothing out there that requires teacher preparation programs to include life into their curriculum, which is something that needs to change. Also, um, Chapter seven, Dr. DiCapo and Marshall they did a wonderful job uh, about, um, they, they included an activity from one of their students and he used uh, music and dance. I love the arts, especially for life. It, it works very well in my experience. So they did a wonderful job in the chapter, very practitioner oriented, how to incorporate um, the, the program, which is MALP. It's a program that they both uh, built to support live students. Then we have chapter eight, Stephanie and Dr. Montero. They uh, talked a little bit about the transformation journey of a, of a teacher when, um, you know, and it resonated with me many, many times when I was reading this, I was like nodding all the time. And I told them when I talked to them and, um, you know, this journey of going from subject center to student center, the, the fact that uh, teachers, we, we really have to understand where we're coming from who we are as teachers, because many times we just focus on ourselves in the sense that we just want to teach and teach and teach, and we have to get this information across. But life, they don't benefit that way. They benefit when you focus on them and their needs. And um, it's, it's a beautiful chapter. And then chapter nine, we have Michelle and um, Charlene, and they just, this is a, a treasure chest chapter of activities, very practitioner, evidence-based, but very practitioner uh, chapter. And it's actually one of the longest chapters in the whole book, but um, it's just a treasure chest of, of activities, approaches, uh, strategies for life. It's everything that you need to know for um, supporting adolescents' life. 
Um, so chapter nine, highly recommend all the chapters to everyone. Wow, that was a teaser right there. Can you tell us more about chapter nine and just pull one of the activities out or, or one of the examples of music or arts that so that we can we can actually see this in action? Absolutely. So um, Tan, since we're recording, do you want me to share something or? It's up to you. Yeah, okay. sure. Okay, so let me share with you. I can share a screenshot here. So just a, a brief, and again, this, this, is, this is not necessarily the final draft of the chapter, but um, this is an activity here that um, they share with us and is personify words using Instagram. And it just happened that, you know, COVID-19, we had to switch to synchronous, asynchronous. And um, it was very interesting to see all of these activities. They have a lot of figures and pictures. And um, of course they explain all the activities, but um, it's very interesting as a, as a teacher uh, to, to see the activities first being explained and then see the results in the figures. And um, it's just lovely. And she was talking about one of her students here, how they create a kind of this Instagram in, um, and again, students with interrupted schooling, but you know, they use a lot of visuals, which is very important. I, I do believe art is very, very important for um, to reach life in my experience. But um, yeah, this is kind of like a quick, quick snapshot, but um, highly recommend, highly recommend. It's great. It seems very relevant to students because it seems like a lot of students Instagram is like their their version of interacting with each other. Right. And so even with our life, they are using Instagram and connecting with friends and families across borders. And so your your this example shows that the teachers are using something that is relevant and connected to their lives, which is everything that you, that that Malp is talking about. Absolutely. And that's, that's also something very, very important to consider is that when we're teaching SLIFE, uh, we cannot just teach random, you know, content or information. The content that we teach them has to be contextualized, has to be in context, something that is happening so they can see what they're learning in their real life. So the fact that they shared, you know, kind of like in the moment, um, topics right there about the pandemic, learning about the pandemic, learning about COVID, Instagram, which is something that they use in their daily lives. That's something that is going to stay with their students. And I, I know it was effective for them because I read the chapter, but you know, I know right away without even without talking to them, I knew it was going to be successful for their students. Let's move to talking about part four, uh, which is talking about building resilience with life. Yes, in part four, we have, it's, it's about resilience. And also um, I wanted to include here in this particular uh, section or part chapters that talked about K through 12 in particular. So we have chapter 10, which is kind of like a general K through 12 perspective. Uh, Doctors Casanova and Alicia Alvarez. I was very grateful that they joined. Um, they wrote about fostering the resilience and cultural wealth of students with limited or interrupted formal education. And they talked a little bit about uh, cultural sustaining pedagogy and how to do it. One of my favorite chapters, I don't think I should say this, but it's one of my favorite chapter 11, supporting queer live youth, initial queer considerations written by Ethan Trin. And to this point, this is actually one of the, um, one of the major um, 
points, uh, salient points in, in the feedback that we've received from Springer is that this is just cutting, cutting edge. Uh, you have not seen something like this before. And I was so, so thankful for Ethan and um, they, they graciously accepted to write about something that has not been done before. You don't hear about queer's life. It's just not in the, in, in the field yet, but Ethan is leading that conversation. So I was so, so grateful. And then also we have chapter 12, Drs. Cruzado Guerrero and Martinez Alba. And Dr. Martinez Alba, she's, she's a wonderful friend of mine and colleague, and we, we've, we've worked on other projects. And I was so grateful that they agreed to, to write about using wordless books for literacy events for families and elementary school children's life. And then chapter 13, I knew right away when I was thinking about middle and high school, I knew that I wanted to recruit two of my colleagues. They were actually, we went together to our PhD program. We were in the same cohort, Drs. Aker and Dr. Daniel and me, and the three of us, we work, we paused for a while because all of us, you know, we're busy with other projects, but we started writing during our dissertation uh, period. We started writing about problem-based service learning, PBSL. And, um, I told them we have to write a chapter about PBSL First Life. And of course they agreed, Dr. Daniel, she's a teacher in middle school. I'm a teacher in high, I used to be a teacher in high school when I was writing this chapter. And Margie, Dr. Aker, she was teaching in community organizations. So it was just the, the best, most appropriate balance. Each of us wrote about middle, high school, community organizations. It just worked perfectly. And um, it, it's a great, I really, really love this section as well. Great section, very, again, practice focused, especially chapters 12, 13. They're very, very practitioner oriented. We talked about, for example, how to, um, to, to use uh, journaling and nature, for example, in problem-based service learning to support life. I can share with you another quick, um, quick shot here. We have some pictures. And um, so we, in essence, we, Chapter 13, we, we introduced strategic steps to pro, uh, problem-based service learning. So it's five steps, or I'm sorry, seven steps, which is number one, planning, um, learning about the background, preparing for service learning. Number four is implementing field experience and civic engagement. Number five, reflecting and connecting. Number six, diversifying and repeating. And number seven, expressing gratitude and evaluating. And we did, um, we kind of incorporated those seven steps in middle school, then in high school, then in community organizations. And um, let me share two pictures here with you, which I love. There are two pictures from Dr. Daniel in her example of middle school. And um, they did an indigenous garden in her middle school using problem-based service learning. And uh, it was just, it's, it's one of my favorite activities in the whole book. And they went through the seven step process, identifying the problem, finding a solution. How is the solution going to be of service to the community, planning for the whole event and, and the whole, it's, I'm, I'm telling you, and you know, um, it, this is wonderful. This is a wonderful activity. And as you can see here, middle school students, um, they're, they're learning, they're learning, they're, they're migrants, there's life, but they're, they're doing their own journaling. They're taking notes, they're using, all the skills that they have that necessarily don't have that doesn't have to be print literacy it can be you know like journaling nature or or just uh, using that background information that they might have about what what are the best plants to use here or or how do we plant or 
what do we need to plant all of these things dr daniel talks about it in in her um in her activity but i highly highly recommend this chapter as well of course i'm biased i wrote it but <laughs> highly recommend it and uh, really all the chapters i i love like i said chapter 11 as well and um, I think Ethan has actually presented about this or will be presenting. I, I pushed them to, um, to, to, to present. I told Ethan, you have to talk about this because this is something that you don't see in, in the publications, Queer's Life. And um, it, it's just uh, wonderful. It, it's also heartbreaking to, to learn about Queer's Life and the, the realities that they go through. And, but um, Ethan does, does a great job to um, offer some insights on what teachers can do. First, to recognize the different uh, layers of, of, of vulnerability, right? They're vulnerable for, for different reasons and, and the different challenges that they have to go through beyond print literacy. But then um, Ethan does a good job about talking to teachers. Okay, this is what you need to recognize and this is what you can do to support them, so. So let's zoom in and double click and talk more about service learning. I feel like I've, I, I had Dr. Debbie Zakarian on and she talked about how service learning is really important as well. And I feel like this is a, a recurring theme, especially for SLIFIS because uh, Dr. Marshall and DeCapua, they said that a lot of the SLIFE that come to our countries, uh, they come from uh, collectivist communities. And uh, they have contextualize learning experiences. Like you go and you get water for the family. You go and you find certain roots for the family. But then all of a sudden we tell them to go sit and write an essay. And like, what is this essay for? Like, I don't, there's like a, such a connection. That's why we find a lot of slife leaving school. It's like, they're like, this is not practical at all. My parents need my help. And that's because they're from a collectivist society. So I feel like project based learning, service learning is really an answer to make things more relevant for students. Why is that? Absolutely. I think also, and, and not only First Life, I, I, I do believe um, this is a, a promise that uh, Margie, Dr. Aker, Dr. Daniel and I made to each other, and we have to go back and write a book about problem-based service learning, especially for uh, migrant students. Uh, <laughs> we'll get to it. So hopefully we'll, in a few years, we'll be back here time to talk about it. But, you know, in my experience, I, I do feel that especially problem-based service learning, this idea of finding a problem in your community and then finding a solution that benefits everyone. So it's not just about learning for the sake of learning, you're learning for, for the benefit of others, for, for yourself, of course, but then for the benefit of others. And I do think that, that that's an opportunity for students to learn about moral values, to learn about, of course, problem solving skills, all of these things. But there's also an opportunity for them to see that their abilities, the, the skills that they have, finding solutions, benefits, people beyond them, you know, benefits the community. So in my example, for example, here in um, when I was in, in this particular chapter, I wrote about a project that we did. And um, initially that project, I wanted us to go to in Washington, DC, of course, you know, we have monuments and all of these things. So I wanted us to go on a field trip uh, for English learners, newcomers, but as you know, budget is always a, a problem, an issue. So we couldn't go to, to uh, field trips. And I wanted them to learn and contextualize settings. You know, the White House, this is the White House. So they could learn about that. Or this is the, you know, um, 
the Pentagon or this or whatever, you know, just different, but we just couldn't do it because of, of budgetary reasons. So what we did was that I made this a problem-based service learning activity where we're learning about um, different, and didn't have to be at that point about the DC area, but different monuments and, and landmarks about the, you know, around the US. So what they did is that each of them created kind of like, um, uh, let me show you here. I, they did a really wonderful job. So another, another preview here for the audience. So what we did was that we we partnered with um, the the school library, and then the the school librarian she was wonderful. She helped us because you know we had to go to the computers and look for information. So I gave them time in teams. They they worked in teams and they chose their landmark, the 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 monument that they wanted to focus on. They looked for information online, and then they created. They had to create these um, line, uh, landmarks or monuments and then presented in front of the class. And then at the end, uh, at the end of the project, when everything was completed, then we donated all of these landmarks and monuments to the school library. So all the students could see them. And then as you can see here, all of them had information in the front so everybody could read about it. So uh, that was kind of like the service element. And they were very proud because, you know, the, the school recognized their efforts, uh, the administration, the principal kind of gave them a shout out, you know, thank you to the newcomers for donating their projects. And that was a big day for them. That was that was very exciting. So this is a, they could see, you know, they, they're learning, they're, they're doing this. They have, as you can see, they're very uh, skillful. I mean, look at this White House. This is beautiful you know uh so they have skills they have abilities but they're they're learning they're they're doing this for somebody else and they're being recognized for it it was just wonderful it was just wonderful they really love this project i mean you could see their the way they're lifted in the community the way they're being perceived is now altered and changed because people say oh wow they're actually doing something for the community but also i think as kids are learning about this they'll never ask why are we doing this? Why are we doing this? For, and like you, we have an answer. We're doing this because we're going to bring the monuments into school because we don't have the budget to get to go out. So what can we do about that? And so it makes learning contextualized and relevant and purposeful. Absolutely, and and they were very motivated. Let me tell you, very motivated. <laughs> Let's move to the last part. Uh, it's about adults' life. What can we do to support adults' life? Adults' life. Um, this was also another wonderful section to, um, and, and I was very grateful to to recruit the all the people that we we have here. So for chapter fourteen, we had none. Uh, chapter fifteen, we have three teachers from um, from Israel. We have Sohar, Rachel, and Elon. In uh, chapter sixteen, we have Andrea Lipka, and she does a lot of work with um, digital visual methods. I, I tell her that she's very, she's like the opposite of me. She's very techie and like just very intelligent with technology and visual methods, which I love. I just don't have the creativity to do it. And she's wonderful with that. Chapter 17, we have Martha young Scholten, which is, you know, she's a big name with adult, um, um, adults, Lesla or adults life. And then Egel is her co-author co here. And then chapter 18, a wonderful friend and colleague, Dr. Kidwell, Tavita Kidwell. She uh, wrote about her experiences supporting um, different migrant women in the United States who had interrupted schooling from, from different countries. So in here for, um, there are different, different approaches here and diff different information. Everybody has kind of like their own 
um, message. But for for I, what I can tell you in general message here is that adults need to learn with a purpose. So um, like chapter 18, for example, which is um, Tabitha Kidwood's chapter is the last chapter of the book. Her, her uh, quote in the title says it all, we should learn English to solve our problems. So adults want to learn the language, English, to be able to solve their problems. The goal here is not to know how to conjugate verbs, just to learn how to conjugate verbs. No, they're learning language in a way that they can use it in real life situations. And then Tabitha, for example, in her chapter, she talks about how in, in her, um, it was a community program that they had, a community class, and they really enjoy the students. They really enjoy one of the classes where they went to the store, a very local store, you know, small, but then they went there and they practice, you know, how to say, hi, how are you? I would like to buy this. How much is this? Things that they need to use every day. That's the vocabulary that you need to develop every day. Or can I have a bag? Or, you know, do you have more of this kind of like daily use vocabulary that those are the things that you need. And um, they were very happy with that. Um, so there, there's different things. Um, Andrea, for example, Lipka chapter 16, she talks about how to use digital visual methods. And she talks about murals and pictures uh, to support uh, students. And I really love this chapter because I love arts again, <laughs> first life, but I, I don't know much of how to do it. So this is a great chapter to, to learn a little bit about how to incorporate visual methods into um, into uh, life classrooms. And last but not least, um, chapter 15 also was one of my um, my favorite ones, really. Uh, they're all my favorites, but this one was, has a, a special message here because they talk about explicit instruction. And this is something that, um, you know, Tan, we, we have, especially in the field right now, we tend to promote more like student-centered instruction and things like that. But in this particular chapter, chapter 15, Sohar, Rachel, and Elon, they really do a wonderful job making a case for explicit instruction. The fact that it's explicit instruction can be seen as teacher-focused, but they make a case to why it works in their context in Israel for their, the immigrant population that they teach. And um, they talked about, for example, when, when initially when they had student-centered classrooms, students didn't know what to do because they also come from cultures that have traditional school systems. So it has to be a gradual process of release. If you just in the classroom and you tell them, okay, do this activity, but they don't, first they're learning print literacy. And second, they don't know what student center environments are. So they're confused because they don't know the language, they're learning how to read and write, and then they don't know what center, student center instruction is. So it's, it's, it's not gonna work for them. And um, they really make a case to how explicit instruction works. And also the really the considerations for explicit instruction for teachers, because when you're teaching more explicitly, there are uh, abilities or, or skills that teachers need to have to be able to explain the content more explicitly then you wouldn't need to develop, for example, if you're doing student-centered teaching. So um, it's, it's a great chapter uh, also. So I, I recommend all of them. <laughs> well, I recommend this book. It, and as you were talking extensively about your, the chapters, I thought, oh my goodness, I'm so happy that your first plan for your dissertation was not approved because we were waiting for this book. We're waiting for you to write it. And this is uh, the fruit of your dissertation. So 
thank you for coming on to talk to us about your book and writing it. Thank you so much, Stan, for those kind words. This is this was really a, a labor of love. It's been, uh, I mean, we're now in 2022, but we started this book in 2018, just the idea, conceptualizing the idea. And then we spent uh, 2019 writing it. And then uh, 2021, going through the review, it's been, it's, it's been a process. It's, it's been a few years in the making, but we're all so proud, so proud of this work. And um, it just if, if, if this book helps a little bit, just a little bit, the, the, the field to push forward in what we know about SLIFE, then I think, you know, I'm, I'm happy. So that's what I, I really hope, above all, that this book helps teachers, practitioners, and that it continues to to kind of guide the direction where we're heading towards supporting SLIFE. Well, you've brought all the top experts in the field of SLIFE and also teachers who are practicing uh, and then applying the strategies and the suggestions from the researchers. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Yes. And we have people here. I don't know if I mentioned this, but in addition to having, of course, international scholars here, uh, individuals who might be now in the U.S., but, you know, they're, they're, uh, they come from different perspectives as well. But we, we do have scholars who are situated right now in uh, Canada. We have scholars who are situated in Israel, uh, Italy, U.K., and, of course, the United States. So um, my hope is to, to continue this and expand that even more and include more countries in the future. Right. Quite international. Yes. <laughs> Let's end with this. Um, it's called traffic light teaching. It's a red light. is something that you would ask teachers to stop doing in terms of life. A yellow light is, as, is something that you would want them to start doing. And then a green light is something you would ask them to keep doing. So stop, start, keep doing. Well, the red light, the stop doing is, um, and this goes back to something that I mentioned earlier, to not um, to avoid approaching life with a preconceived mindset of what they need or who they are. Talk to life, learn about them, um, you know, learn about their languages, learn about their situations. Because also when we think about interrupted schooling, usually it doesn't happen just because it happens. There are reasons behind it. So there might be some trauma attached to it. There might be some difficulties so it's, it's not just interrupter schooling. There is more there that students need to unpack to be able to successfully integrate into the new school system. Um, because it's really more about than just learning print literacy. It's, it's, it's becoming part of the school system, doing schooling, as Dr. Zicapo and Marshall call it. You know, doing schooling is new for them. They don't know how to do schooling. So uh, please um, approach, this is a green light, approach students with, with uh, an open mind, um, especially SLIFE students. And the, the yellow one, I, I went kind of like red, green, and then yellow, <laughs> but the yellow one to continue doing is to continue thinking of students as students, as human beings uh, who, who are more than just individuals who are kind of uh, just absorbing content, but who are human beings. They're dealing with struggles as we know, and um, hopefully, uh, you can look at the conversation with Hilda of social-emotional learning and keep doing that work of social-emotional support for students. Well, this has been a great conversation of helping us think. It was almost like having all the experts in one place, and that's what you did. 
And so you were a wonderful host at a table where we were taking so much from the conversation. So Dr. Luis Javier Penton Herrera, muchas gracias. Muchas gracias, Tan. Thank you again for, for the opportunity to be here with you. Thank you for your kind words. And thank you for the opportunity to talk uh, about my book here. It's, I hope it's, it's a, good, a good contribution to the field. It definitely is. Before we recap this episode, I have a favor and an invitation. My favor is to ask you to please review this podcast if you found it valuable so that teachers like you become inspired and informed in their advocacy work. My invitation is for you to enroll in my scaffolding learning or teacher collaboration courses. I've taken the principles that I've learned from experts in the field. I've applied them to my classes. I kept the things that worked and I'm sharing all of them in these courses. I hope you consider enrolling. Now onto our recap. I'd like to recap this podcast conversation with what Luis said when talking about his grandmother. Though she might have had a limited schooling experience, that does not mean that she is limited in intelligence or less able. It is from this assets-rooted perspective that we need to firmly have when instructing all students, especially SLIFE. In the next podcast conversation, we end our SLIFE series with teacher Leslie Garcia, who will give us very specific examples of practical projects that she has implemented with her SLIFE. Thank you for listening. I'll see you soon. Be safe and be rooted in peace. It's your turn to play Traffic Light Teaching. Tweet at me either your red, yellow, or green light from this particular episode. Never do.